We are so blessed to be joined again by best-selling author Lee Strobel. Today, we're gonna dig into the question, is God real? Lee, thanks so much for coming back to Takeaways. Oh, I love I love hanging out with you. We, we get into some great discussions. We really do because <laughs> apologetics is one of my favorite topics. I remember as a young Christian having so many questions myself, and I yeah. always was worried that there might be some ultimate question <laughs> Uh, as a skeleton in the closet that one day an atheist would drag out into the right, open right. and expose everybody as these silly Christians believing in fairy tales. So I wanted the answers yeah. to why we believe what we believe. I wish everybody would take that approach and say, I want to delve into this. We need to know why we believe what we believe. We're living in a hostile and a, a, a skeptical culture. Uh, I was talking to a guy who said his six-year-old granddaughter was on the playground at a public school um, during recess, and the other kids were taunting her because she believes in God. Oh, you still believe in fairy tales. You still believe in make-believe. The, the six-year-old. So yeah. our children and grandchildren are going to get uh, challenged in their faith in a way that older generations have not been. So we need to help them understand why we believe what we believe. That's right. And you've got this brand new book called Is God Real? Now, Lee, you wrote The Case for Christ, The Case for Christmas, which I read this last Christmas, and you, you've been making the case for God yeah. for a long, long time. What compelled you to come out with this book, Is God Real? Well, it's so funny. The publisher came to me and they said, our tech people have made a discovery. I said, what? I said, we've discovered that 200 times a second around the clock, Someone on planet Earth is typing into a computer search engine, basically the question, is God real? Mm. And they told me this, and I thought, my goodness, if there's that much interest and curiosity, I ought to do a book and, and, and address that question. So I drew on some of my previous material, added new material, and kind of it's kind of a one-stop shop to kind of get the basic case for God being real. According to research that you've done in preparing to write this yep. book, have you found that that people are believing more in God or people are believing less in God. And is that different in other parts of the world than it is here in America? Yeah. Because I've seen a global shift yeah. when it comes to the gospel taking root away from the West to places like South America, yes. South Africa, right. China, the yeah. Middle East. What's going on here in our country? There's sort of two competing trends. One is fewer Americans believe in God. When I was a freshman in high school, met my wife in 1966, 98% um, of American adults believed in God. 98 98%. 98%. Today, it's 81%. Mm. It's the lowest ever in history. So yes, there's a drop here in people. But at the same time, there's a, a significant percentage of Americans who say, I want to grow spiritually. I want to learn more. Mm. Um, I have a friend, Shane Pruitt. I don't know if you know Shane, but Shane's ministry is to travel the country and to speak to groups of young people, high school, college students, and he's an evangelist. And he said, Lee, in the last three years, I've seen more teenagers come to faith in Jesus Christ than in the previous 18 years of ministry combined. Right. Uh, and then we see these outbreaks of the Holy Spirit in different places in America, like in Asbury and so forth, and that, that suggests that there's something else going on. I just saw recently another student ministry said we had a 20% increase last okay. year in the number of young people coming to faith. So I think it's a both and. I think yeah. we're seeing increased skepticism, but at the same time, there's a hunger that's, that's underlying. Right. And that makes sense to me, Lee, because if you, pu if you pull away from the most 
from the thing that defines life, yes. from the God who gives meaning and purpose to life itself, there's going to be an undeniable vacuum yes. and, uh, and, a, and, a, and an extracting yes. of the most important things out of life. No wonder there's an increased hunger exactly. to say, where, then what is life all about? And yes. that's what we're seeing in the young people. We're seeing that, and we're seeing, as you say, internationally, uh, we're seeing where the gospel is breaking in, like in Mozambique, for instance, or in Brazil, we're seeing an outbreak of the miraculous take place. In fact, it's been studied and published in peer-reviewed scientific medical journals. Southern Medical Journal carried an article scientifically showing that there is <laughs> there's something going on supernaturally mm. that can't be explained scientifically in Mozambique and in Brazil. So you see this trend also happening around the planet. Leap. Diving into the topic of your book, Is God Real? What have you found to be the biggest reasons people struggle yeah. to believe in God? I think there are two, um, and one is kind of new. Um, the biggest struggle is, in fact, I did a survey. I asked a cross-section of Americans, um, if you could ask God any one question and you knew he would give you an answer right now, what would you ask him? And by a huge margin, the number one question is, if there's a God, if God is real, why is there suffering in the world? It's some permutation of that. That's the mm. number one objection. The number two objection is kind of new. Um, and that is this, if God is real and he loves us and wants a relationship with us, why does he seem so hidden? Why doesn't he make himself more obvious to mm. us so that nobody would have a doubt that he exists? That's a kind of a new objection that is gaining traction. And so I deal with both of those in this book. I interview scholars who respond to those questions yeah, because those are the two. Now, neither of those issues negate the 20 lines of evidence that point toward the truth of Christianity. So we have all these lines of evidence that point toward Christianity being true. Those objections don't negate those, mm. but they're legitimate and they need to be looked at. And I think Christianity does provide good answers. So, so Lee, uh, what is, the best way or a good way to answer someone who says, you know, I have trouble believing in God because I can't see him. Yeah. I think, um, and that's kind of the hiddenness question. You know, why is he hidden? If, if I could see him, I believe in him. Right. Well, you know what? Probably not. And I'll tell you why. Because we have instances in history where God did make his presence beyond obvious. For instance, uh, guiding the Israelites through the desert. I was just thinking of that. Yep. And even before that, in Israel, with all of the plagues and parting the Red Sea. They parting the Red Sea. But what happened? Did it, you would think, oh my goodness, God is real. I will, no, they fell into apostasy again. So, so why would it be any different today if all of a sudden God wrote in the sky, hey, folks, I'm really here, we would say, oh, well, that's an optical illusion. Someone's projecting that. Um, so I'm not so sure if God you know, knocked on each one of our doors and said, excuse me, I'm right here. Um, I, I think some people would say, nah, I'm not so sure. Besides which, the goal of God is not just to have people agree that he exists. The demons know that he exists mm, and they shudder. Um, what he wants is us to yield our lives to him, to have a relationship with him, to, to surrender to mm -hmm. him, to follow him, uh, uh, to be adopted as his son, as his daughter, and so forth, have a relationship. That's really the crux. Yeah. And that's where things get hard because people want to come to God on their own terms. You know, I'll come to God if he endorses this and this and this, but if he doesn't, I'm not interested. Um, so they want God to come on their terms as opposed to saying, wait a minute, if God is real, I ought to come to him on his terms. 
Yeah. And I can think of, now I used to be an atheist. I, yeah. I tell people that today I am a recovering atheist. <laughs> I, I still have lots of skeptical thoughts and questions yeah. that I have answers to some and others I still am waiting. Sure. Um, but there are also lots of things I believe in uh, and I believed in as an atheist that I could not see. Yeah, right. uh, I can't see the wind, but I can see how it affects things yes. like leaves on a tree. Right. I can't see uh, history uh, or, love. I, or love, but I believe in those things because of circumstantial evidence and yes. other corroborating evidences. And so I can't say that the lack of visual sight demonstrates mm -hmm. something cannot exist. Right, right. The question is, why did God choose to do it that way? And, yeah. and maybe there's a reason behind all of this. And, and maybe there's an element of faith that he requires and delights in. And it's a way of keeping proud people out of the kingdom and allowing humble people into the kingdom so that he's yeah. not stratifying heaven based off of intelligence and right. IQ or athletic performance yeah. or even visual capability. It's based on maybe a condition of the heart. Right. God walks a fine line. Uh, he needs to make himself readily evident to those who want to find him. And he but, says that he has. And he says that he has. It says in Romans 1 verse 20, it's so clear from nature. Just that like you exists. see on the cover of your book, there it is. The exactly. heavens declare. There you the, go. It's the great big cosmic shout in your yes, face yes. that God is here. Right. But on the other hand, he has to keep himself sufficiently hidden so that those who don't want to find him won't find him. That respects our freedom of will. Mm. That respects our ability to decide whether we're going to follow him or not. So God kind of walks that line. Um, besides which, you look at Isaiah when he encountered and saw God on his throne and what that did, it tore him apart. I mean, it was so emotional and so forth. Doesn't so, the scriptures even say that no man can see God and live? Yeah, that's so, true. So that would be a problem. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Although we see him in, in Jesus, obviously, you know, with Jesus being part of the Trinity and so forth. So he did that's right. live the, in a the way exact representation right, of, of right. God. I think as uh, one person far smarter than me once said, uh, I think it was R.C. Sproul, actually, yeah. he had said, uh, you know, the great challenge for the unbeliever, the person who says God is not real, is not a challenge of the lack of evidence. Mm -hmm. It's a challenge of his own moral character. Absolutely. It's a moral issue. Yes. It's not an evidence issue. Right. There's stuff going on. Yeah. Uh, and things they want to do on the weekend yes. that they don't want to be held accountable by God for. Exactly. Now, in Romans, where it talks about that God is evident through creation, we're all um, without excuse for knowing that God exists because mm. we see him in nature. But it also says in Romans, we suppress that. And the Greek there, imagery, is like a petal. And so God makes himself evident through nature, but we suppress that, like we push down a pedal. But then it becomes more evident and we push it down again and again. Why? Because we don't want there to be a God. We want to be God. We want to make all our moral decisions. And we don't want to yield that to a creator. And, uh, you know, we wanted things on our terms. For those who would um, acknowledge that there must be some sort of higher power. Yeah. Uh, is that good enough or do we need to determine which God is yeah. the real God? Yeah, we definitely need to determine which, uh, which God is real um, because there are, you know, in my book, I deal with the three different worldviews, pantheism, that everything is God, atheism, there is no God, or theism, there is a God. 
And so we have to analyze those. And when you come to the conclusion that the evidence points toward theism, the existence of God, then you have to say, well, which God are we talking about? The God of Islam, the God of... Mm. And then you go to things like the Bible and uh, you look at the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus and so forth. Um, because the Quran, you know, as I was an atheist as well, and as I was doing my investigation, I read the Quran, I read the Bible, and I noticed that they're totally incompatible. That, that the Quran specifically denies the exact things you have to believe to be a Christian. It says Jesus didn't die on the cross, Surah 4, verse 157. It says that uh, God doesn't have a son. It says that no person can bear the sins of another. Um, well, those are key beliefs yeah. if you're going to be a Christian. So if we can show that the Bible is historically reliable, it automatically excludes the Quran as being reliable. They can't both be true at the same time. And yeah, they're mutually exclusive. Yes. They're contradicting one another. Exactly. Someone's belief about God can impact their beliefs about other things. Oh, absolutely. How does it impact someone's belief about their family? Well, as you say, it affects everything. It is a worldview. It is a lens through which you see life. And so um, what do I want out of a marriage? What do I want in a family and mm. so forth? Uh, if, if I am a follower of Jesus, there are certain things I can learn from Scripture that describe what that looks like. Um, uh, but as atheists will tell you, if there is no God, anything's permissible. And so there is no universal objective right or wrong. And so that opens the door to all kinds of uh, things that scripture would uh, frown upon or, or consider to be sinful. Um, whereas if I'm a follower of Jesus, it gives me a pattern for living my life. It gives me a, it gives me a purpose. Mm -hmm. It gives me a pattern. Um, uh, I can decide uh, yeah. how I can live in a way consistent with what Jesus taught. And uh, so it affects my career. It affects my uh, my attitude toward others. It, it affects how I serve other people and so forth. I, I love that because Jesus, who is God in human flesh, told us as Christians to be salt and light yeah. in the culture. And, and that this isn't some private thing that we hide right. under a basket. It's something that actually uh, produces light Yes. And that light shines in the darkness. We yes. have a better world right. when we believe in God. Right, exactly. Because that gives value to people, whether they're black or white or tall or short or from this ethnicity or they speak that language or male or female. And that's what the scriptures tell us. Exactly. And that's where we get so much of science and medicine and hospitals education. and education. Yep. And all of this stems from a belief that God is real and gives value and dignity to each person exactly. because they are made, what? In the image of that God. Right, we're not cosmic accidents that, that don't really have any intrinsic value, but we are made in the image of God. And so how we treat other people, you know, the Bible says, as you're quoting Jesus there, to let your light shine among others that they may see your good deeds and praise mm. your Father in heaven. That's right. So he says, we ought to be serving people, we ought to be loving people. Well, if, if we're really just a product of Darwinian evolution, why? I should just eat you. Yeah, exactly. If, that's, yeah. if that sustains my life and helps my uh, right. reproductive advantage yep. to produce more children. But we know that that is evil. No one yeah. wants to live in an animalistic dog-eat-dog survival of the fittest and, world. And that's the problem when you look at, for instance, atheism. You know, there's a, a famous uh, argument for the existence of God, the moral argument that says that um, uh, if there's no objective moral values, then atheism is true. But there are objective moral values. Therefore, atheism is false. 
that's that's incredibly important because if if you believe if you're an atheist there is no universal no objective right or wrong yeah uh, this is what ted bundy the serial killer said you know he was enlightened in the sense that he realized that i can i can decide what's right and what's wrong and so forth but we all know deep down you can't live that way you cannot live that way there are objective moral values it is always wrong to torture a baby for fun um, the Holocaust, if the Nazis had won World War II and convinced the world that the Holocaust was right, it would still be wrong. Why? Because it is objectively wrong to um, uh, dehumanize a group of people and kill them uh, out of your hatred. It's just objectively wrong. Amen. Amen. How do we know that it's objectively wrong? I, I think this, you know, we, we can go deep down in here, but yeah. I believe it's because God is real, yeah. as you prove in your book, and this real God has given us a real conscience, and yeah. he's informed us with his moral standard yes. that we know intrinsically is right. Even yes. if we don't live up to the standards of our conscience, we know it's wrong yes. to uh, betray those who have been loyal to you and are on your side. We know that it's wrong to lie, cheat, and steal for your own selfish gain. Yeah. That's exactly right. And without that kind of, of um, objective truth, um, we're lost as a society yeah. uh, and as a culture. And so we've fallen into relativism where you have your truth, I have my truth. Um, you know, that's more preference. Like I like chocolate versus vanilla or whatever. Yep. That's not truth. Truth is that which corresponds to reality. Lee, in your, in your book, you share a few examples uh, of, of lines of study that demonstrate the existence of God. Yeah. One of them is the cosmos with William Lane Craig. Yes. Uh, Unpack that for us. This is an argument for the existence of God that if I were still an atheist, this one line of evidence would convince me that God exists. Um, and here's what it is. Virtually every uh, scientist in the world now believes the universe began at some point in the past. Um, um, in fact- That the, the universe is not eternal. It's not eternal. It has not always existed. Um, Alexander Vilenkin, the head of the Cosmology Institute at Tufts University, said um, the proof is now in place that the universe had a beginning. Well, that makes a strong argument for God because whatever begins to exist has a cause. We now know the universe began to exist. Therefore, there must be a cause behind the universe. Well, then he asks the question, what kind of a cause could bring a universe into existence? It must be transcendent because it existed apart from the creation. It must be timeless or eternal, because it existed before physical time came into being. It must be immaterial or spirit, because it existed before the physical world was created. It must be powerful, given the immensity of the creation event. It must be smart, given the precision of the creation event. Um, it must be caring, because he created such a wonderful habitat for us to exist in. Mm -hmm. it must be personal, because he had to make the decision to create. And then the scientific principle of Occam's razor tells us there would be just one creator. Well, wait a second. Transcendent, spirit, e um, um, eternal, smart, powerful, powerful, smart, loving, unique. That's a description of the God of the Bible. And I'm telling you, Kirk, if I were still an atheist, I would look at that argument and say, I do not think. And I've, I've listened to atheists and skeptics try to attack that argument. I don't think there's a good counter argument. I think that argument does it all. And I personally, anyway, would come to the conclusion there is a divine creator. One of the other lines of argument that you talk about in your book is uh, the argument of DNA. And I yes. think years ago, I had asked you, what's what's an argument that you just find so compelling? Yeah. And you said DNA. And I think yeah. you described it. Uh, you know, I live here in California yeah. and on the beach, 
you, you can find ripples in the sand yeah. created by the water, right. patterns that, that could happen yes. by seemingly random right. movement of the water. But if you looked into that sand, you told me, yeah. and I saw John loves Sally forever with a big heart around it, yeah. you'd say, now, that's different because right. that contains information. Exactly. That's not pattern, random movement of the elements. That is communicating a message. Yeah. And that's exactly what DNA is. Exactly. Unpack that for us. Yeah, you have 100 trillion cells in your body. If you were to open any one cell and uncoil the DNA, it would be six feet tall. Embedded in that DNA is a six letter or a four letter chemical alphabet that spells out the precise assembly instructions for every protein out of which you're made. So in other words, just as English uses a 26-letter alphabet to spell out words, DNA uses a four-letter chemical alphabet to spell out the assembly instructions for all that you're made of. Uh, that is information. And whenever we see information, whether it's a computer code, whether it's a painting on a cave wall, whether it's a newspaper article, always, always, always there's an intelligence behind it. And so I think that is a powerful argument for God. There is more information in every cell in your body than you would find in 200 years of the Sunday New York Times. It's, it's just a, a mountain of where's information come from? That's there, right. There's no example anywhere. And in my book, I look at the, the, the kind of uh, theories that scientists come up to to try to account for it. They can't. They can't, there is no example anywhere of, of, of information that does not come from an intelligence. And this is a new argument. This is, I know you know Stephen Meyer, um, PhD from Cambridge University. He has popularized this argument, written books about it, he's, he's awesome. Um, uh, so this is new stuff. This is only the last 40 or 50 years. In your book, you also document uh, story after story of people who have come to faith in God and the transformation of those people yeah. are themselves evidence of a supernatural power. Can yeah. you share one of those stories? Oh, I'll, I'll share my favorite one with you. Um, and this is right. Uh, there are some people have a direct experience with God and um, uh, it's just hard to explain it away. My favorite one is, is a guy that you probably have heard of, um, Evil Knievel. Uh, Evil Knievel was a drunk, he was a womanizer, he was a gambler, um, and- And he, crazy. And crazy. He, he, he jumped over huge things with his motorcycle. He was in the Guinness Book of World Records for the most broken bones of any human being. So, so, but he's on the beach in Florida late in his life, and God spoke to him. He said, I felt it on my inside. And the voice said, Robert, which is his real name, Robert, I've saved you more times than you'll ever know. Now you need to come to me through my son, Jesus. And he's blown, he doesn't even know what to do. And he, he said, who's Jesus? So he calls Frank Gifford, the sportscaster, yep. Kathy Lee Gifford's husband and says, Frank, I had this experience, who's Jesus? And Frank said, get that book by Lee Strobel, The Case for Christ, that'll kind of explain everything. Anyway, Evil Knievel ends up having a radical encounter with God, radical born again experience. Mm. He is turned 180 degrees when he is baptized uh, he tells his story with such passion and such clarity that 700 people got up and came up and received Christ and were baptized on the spot. Wow. And when he died a couple of years later, at his request on his tombstone, it says, believe in Jesus Christ. Mm. Um, there's a life that is so cool. 180 degrees. He called me up. I, I had never met him. And he called me to thank me for writing my book. And, and I answered the phone. And I said, this is Lee. And he says, this is Lee Strobel. I said, yeah. He said, this is evil. And I thought, Satan has got my phone number. Is that even possible? <laughs> no, no, evil can even, oh, okay. So we became friends. And, uh, and I'll tell you what, Kirk, 
His biggest regret toward the end of his life is if I had only come to faith earlier. If I'd only come to faith as a teenager, I could have lived my life differently. I could have lived my life, could have lived my life for God. And, and he, he lamented that over and over again it was his biggest regret. And so I tell a lot of young people that story because at the end of his life, he said, you know what? I, that's my, if I could go back, it would change everything. I love stories like this. <clears throat> I love evidence. I love archaeological evidence and uh, psychological evidence and all of these things. But there is nothing more powerful than a personal experience yeah. from the God who is real. Yes. My friend Ray Comfort is an evangelist. He yeah. goes out on the streets and he asks people, ever told a lie? Yeah. Would you consider yourself to be a good person? <laughs> and and these are great conversations. But when someone actually takes Jesus Christ up on his offer, yeah. when he says, if anyone will come to me and you'll believe my words and you'll obey the gospel, yeah. I will come to him. My father will come to him and we'll make our home with him. Yeah. And he said, it's like, it's like a person who's been told that, that this uh, electric space heater uh, has a, a red hot bar inside and it's hot. And they've been told it so much that they believe it with all of their hearts. But then one day they reach in there and they grab the heater bar and they move from the realm of belief yeah. to the realm of personal experience. Yeah. And one is good, but the other yeah. is life-changing. Now he doesn't just believe it's hot, he knows that it's hot. And when someone puts their faith in Jesus Christ, turns from their sins, trusts in the savior of the universe, the God who is real, it's literally transformative. Absolutely. I'm uh, so glad you, in, you include these stories in the book. And some, you know, we have miracle stories like that of, of people whose lives are transformed because God touches them in a miraculous way that his study's been published in scientific peer-reviewed journals. Um, a woman who was blind for a dozen years, who read with Braille, who went to a school for the blind, who walked with a cane, um, married a Baptist pastor. And one night he, they were getting to bed and he put his arm on his shoulder and he said, God, and he prayed and he said, God, I know you can heal my wife. I know you can do it right now. And I ask you right now, hmm. would you heal my wife? And she opened her eyes with perfect eyesight. And that's been over 40 years that she's had perfect eyesight. What do you do with that? What do you do? 34% of Americans say, I've had an experience in my life that I can only attribute to a miracle of God. Mm. And even if you say 99% of them are wrong, that still leaves a million miracles just in America. So God sometimes touches us in ways that science can actually look at and say, this points towards something beyond our ability to really analyze. So Lee, I'm a I'm an actor, and so I like to role play. Yeah. <laughs> and and so I was hoping maybe we could talk about some specific situations. Sure. Like, for instance, uh, let's say you're talking with somebody, and you both share a belief that God exists. Yeah. Um, how can we use that common ground? Yeah. To then take the next step. Maybe the guy's a Hindu or yeah. a, or a Muslim yeah. or uh, something else. Yeah. And then begin to share the gospel with them. What, yeah. What's the best first step? I think the first step is to say, that's great. You believe in God. You know, I believe in God too. But the question is, which God is real? Mm. Um, because they can't all be the same uh, real, uh, at the same time because they contradict each other. Mm. Their world religions yeah. are irreconcilable with each other. And so um, the reason I follow Jesus is because of the historical evidence that he claimed to be the son of God, and then backed up that claim by returning from the dead. Have you ever looked into the evidence for the resurrection? Oh, that's good. And I find most people have not. And um, of course, the most successful lawyer in history, 
Sir Lionel Lucku, who won 247 murder trials in a row as a defense attorney, either before a jury or on appeal, was in the Guinness Book of World Records, most successful lawyer. Um, so he knows evidence. He knows, he knows facts. He knows um, what the legal process determines to be true. And somebody asked him that question. They said, Sir Lionel, you're the greatest lawyer in the world. Uh, have, have you ever looked into the evidence for the resurrection? And he said, well, no, I don't believe it, but I've never really looked into it. I think I will. Mm. He spent years of his life investigating it. And I'll recite to you one sentence he wrote that summarized his conclusion. He says, I say unequivocally that the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so overwhelming that it compels acceptance by proof, which leaves absolutely no room for doubt. This from the greatest lawyer who ever lived. Wow. By the way, I told that story in Southern California and uh, a woman came up to me later and she said, I'm Sir Lionel's sister. And uh, she showed me some of his private papers that were unpublished about his research. He later left the legal profession and became an evangelist. But wow. there's an example. Most people have not spent any time looking into the evidence for the resurrection. So you might say, well, you haven't. Let's read a book together. And there's several books out there you can choose from. Let, let's read a book together and talk about it and look at the evidence. That's really great. In fact, I had a chance to talk with Jeremiah Johnson recently yeah. uh, about his new book called Body of Proof, yes. which examines the evidence for the resurrection. Yeah, good friend of mine. Lee, do you think that in talking to others about the existence of God, that we can go too fast, too quick? Can we scare people off by jumping into the cosmological argument or the DNA argument? I'll tell you something, Kirk, that I don't, I haven't told many people, but I've changed my approach to sharing Jesus with people who have intellectual questions. The way I kind of get into the conversation, I'll say, let me ask you a question. If you could ask God any one question and you knew he'd give you an answer right now, what would you ask him? Mm. Well, 80% of the time, they're going to ask some permutation of the question, if God is real, why is there suffering in the world? So what I used to do is say, oh, well, let me tell you why. And I would give him a little five-point sermon on why God allows suffering. I don't do that anymore. You know what I do? If I ask that question and they say, mm. yeah, if God is real, why is there so much suffering in the world? Instead of giving him a five-point sermon, I say, wait a minute. Of all possible questions in the universe, why did you choose that one? Mm. And then they say, because we lost a child in childbirth five years ago. I want to know where was God when that happened? Or my wife was just diagnosed with breast cancer. Where's God in the middle of that? And that's when I realized they don't need a five-point sermon at that point. Mm. You know what they need? They need me to put my arm around their shoulder and to weep with them and to console them and to relate to them and to mm. love them and to show them grace and to be Jesus to them. And I found out that in 90% of the time, that's what they're looking for. And I found the most powerful apologetic is to love people the way that Jesus would love people. You know, apologists love to quote 1 Peter 3.15, you know, um, uh, always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give the reason mm -hmm, or the hope mm -hmm. that you have. But they forget the last part that says, but do it with gentleness and respect. And I think we have to be gentle and respectful as we relate to people and their questions. That's so important. Also be prepared to give them a hug yes. and to weep with those who weep and to mourn with those who mourn and laugh with those who laugh. Be a Ex person, exactly. be a human being, yes. relate to them. Yes, and if you do that, there's more likelihood that the relationship will continue. Yeah. And then you can get into conversations later about, okay, well, let's talk about why God, I have a chapter in the book. Why does God allow suffering? And I think Christianity, by the way, all worldviews have to Answer deal with that, that question. question, not just Christianity. I think Christianity has the best answers, but, um, but later we can get into that. 
but let's get into why you're asking that question. Yeah. I remember being on the movie set of uh, the movie Left Behind that yeah. I did, and there was one of the actors there who said that he just cannot believe in God. And when I asked him that question, why he would say such a thing, particularly an actor on the, the set of a movie about, oh, God. about God, he said, because I prayed when my sister got leukemia, yeah. that God would heal her, and he didn't. Yeah. And I just can't believe that there would ever be a God. We have to relate to that. We have to understand yeah. that is a traumatic yeah, thing. Yeah, that's let's, a real thing. Let's deal with that. Let's talk about that. That trauma is real. But at the same time, Christianity does offer good answers in that area. Yeah. And, and we need to get to that at some point. Lee, uh, your book covers so much. Uh, one, of the, one of the groups of people I'm thinking of are those who do have a belief in God. They, yeah. they know that God is real, yeah. but their belief in the reality of God or his character has been shaken to the core because of tragedy. Yeah. I can think of people I know who have experienced a tragedy that is so grieving, that is so extreme, I don't even want to explain it to you right now. Yeah. And they've got to be having these huge monumental questions about who is this God yeah. that I have believed in? What is he really like if yeah. he allows these kinds of things to happen? What does the book offer to someone like that? Yeah, you know, you look at other religions, look at Eastern religions, and they say that trauma like that or suffering is maya, which means an illusion. It's not real. I would say baloney. Jesus was honest. Jesus said at one point, in this world, you will have trouble. But then he says, but take courage because I have overcome the world. Mm. So in other words, by his um, a resurrection from the dead. He has established that he is who we claim to be, the unique son of God. And when we're going through the kind of tragedies that many of us go through in this world, he is the one we need to turn to. Why would we not turn to him for comfort, for answers, for uh, the next step to take in life and so forth? I mean, he, he's saying, take courage. I've overcome the world. In other words, I'm here for you. Um, but I think there's also intellectual reasons to understand why they're suffering in the world. You know, God has existed from eternity past as God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit in a perfect love relationship. And when God decided to create humankind, he said love is the greatest value in the universe. So I want humans to experience love. Well, the only way we can do that is if we have free will because love always requires a choice. You know, when my daughter was little, they used to have a toy called Chatty Cathy. It was a doll. Yeah, Remember yeah, Chatty yeah. Cathy? And you pull a string on the back and let go and the doll would talk to you. So she had this doll and she'd pull the string and let go and the doll would say, I love you. And it was how good it was. You know. Did that doll love my daughter? No, it was a machine. It had to say that. It had no choice. That's not love. Real love involves a choice. And so God gave us free will, but what have we done with it? We've walked away from God. Mm. We've hurt each other. I mean, I could take my hand and I could feed a hungry person, or I could take that same hand and pick up a gun and kill an innocent person. But it's a little disingenuous to pick up a gun and kill an innocent person and then say, God, why do you allow suffering in the world? Mm. We're the problem. Mm. We've opened the door to sin permeating the planet and, and oh, the evil that has resulted. This is so, this is so good. Um, someone once reminded me that God is not the author of evil and suffering, but he is the author of a story that has allowed evil yes, and suffering. That's right. We've actualized it. The he had to give us free will for, in order for us to love. But the, the result of that could be and has been 
that we would open the door to sin, that we would be self-centered, that we would hurt each other and so forth. And that's what's happened. But there was no other solution to um, having a world of love um, unless the free will was given. Interesting. Lee, what would you say to somebody who says, you know, I'll get to the God question later on in my life. I'm having too much fun right now. Is that a wise decision? You hear that a lot. And I think it's kind of an unstated objection that a lot of people will raise. I often tell the evil Knievel story at that point and say, you remember evil Knievel? Yeah. You know what? He ended up coming to faith at the end of his life. And his biggest regret was if I'd only come to faith as a teenager, it would have changed my whole life. I could have lived for God. I could have had a purpose in my life. I could have made a difference for him. And his biggest lament was not coming to faith as a young person. Uh, Often I'll tell him that story. Um, But, you know, the decisions that we make every day um, and are going to impact our life and people around us, if they're not shaped by a morality that's reflected by the teachings of Jesus, um, in the end, you're going to reap the the, the damage that's going to result. Um, so I, you know, I say to people, uh, there's no better time than the present. Now is the day of salvation today. Make the choice today. You will never regret it. You'll be able to live your life in a way that you, you, I mean, I think about being an atheist and yes, I was successful. I was legal editor of the Chicago Tribune. I went to Yale law school, um, making money. I was writing books and so forth. Um, but I was a drunk and, and, and I was living a hedonistic, immoral life. And if I had stayed on that path, Kirk, I, I, I shudder to think where I would have ended up. Mm. But I come to Christ because my wife came to Christ. I investigated the evidence. I saw that God is real. And, and, and then um, I, I, I confess my sin. I receive forgiveness through Jesus Christ. And my values change and my character change, my morality change and my philosophy and my attitudes and my relationships and my marriage and my worldview. I mean, all of this change for the good. And I want to tell someone, you don't want to miss this in your life. That's right. You know, I think of my daughter uh, who was five years old when I came to faith. And all she had known was a dad who was absent, angry, um, coming home drunk. That's all she knew. And then I came to faith in Christ. And she started to watch, something's changing with my dad. Something's different with my dad. Something's Mm. new with my dad. Mm. And she watched for about four or five months. And then she came up to Leslie one day and she said, I want God to do for me what he's done for daddy. Uh, And she came to faith that day. And um, um, same thing with my son. And, And I go, you know, coming to faith is a decision that changes our eternity but it's going to change the people around us too. That's right. You mentioned salt and light earlier. You know, we, we make an influence on people around us. And my children are both serving the Lord today um, in a way that I wonder if that would be true had I not come to faith as her father many years earlier. Yeah. Wow. I just, I just love that. <laughs> you know, being uh, in the, the storytelling business yeah. as an actor, I'm also always thinking about the fact that God is the ultimate author of your story and of my story. And we never know when the last chapter is going to close. And while some may want to put that decision to come to faith in God way into the future, because they've got lots of pages left in their story, they may have a rude awakening and say, tonight, my life was demanded from me. I played the part of a fool. So the point is, become friends with the author today yeah, and let his story play out in your life, whatever that is, knowing 
that you've made peace with God and you'll spend eternity with him yeah. in heaven. Several years ago, my wife found me unconscious on the bedroom floor. Called the paramedic. I woke up in the emergency room and the doctor said, you're one step away from a coma, two steps away from dying. Mm. And I hung between life and death for several days. And I'm telling you, Kirk, when that kind of thing happens and you don't know if you're going to survive it, the most important thing is, if I close my eyes for the last time in this world, will I open them in the presence of God forever? Yeah. It all boils down to that. That's yes. the biggest issue. And just cemented in me how critical this is. And, uh, you know, as a, my life's mission is to drag as many people to heaven with me as I can. Um, because some people don't even realize yet um, what is at stake. And when you're hanging between life and death, there's no question what's at stake. And you're exactly right. There's, at, at that point, um, there's only one issue that's, that, that remains. Do I know Jesus personally? Will I spend eternity with him? Will I be reunited with loved ones who passed before me and so mm. forth? Hi, I'm Kirk Cameron. Thanks for listening to this episode of Takeaways. If you love the conversations that we're having, please follow or subscribe to this podcast to never miss any of this great content. And please consider leaving a positive rating and a review to help others like you discover this show.